Hello and namaste. This is Preeti Adhikari. I'm the founder of the Great Nepali Diaspora, a community of global Nepali professionals, and this is TGNDB, Diaspora's Kurakari. Our podcast aims to showcase people with roots in Nepal and share their stories of struggle, perseverance, and success. My guest today, my special guest today, is Ambika Adhikari. Ambika uh, Ji is a principal planner with the city of Tempe, Arizona, where he heads its long-range planning division. He has over 35 years of experience in urban and environmental planning and has international development experience in the U.S., Canada, Nepal, Mexico, Fiji, and Kenya. Um, he is a distinguished adjunct fellow at the Institute of Integrated Development Studies, or IADS, in Nepal. He obtained his Doctor of Design degree from Harvard University and Master of Architecture from the University of Hawaii. He has authored one uh, a book and co-edited six uh, books and has been published widely in journals and newspapers. The Ambika Ji has a stellar, stellar, uh, you know, experience. He is somebody that I uh, admire greatly, and I'm you know super excited to welcome him. Uh, welcome, Ambika Ji. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that warm introduction. Now I have to live up to that. Thank you. <laughs> you, you are, you know, amazing, uh, Ambika Ji. I um, have to tell you, there's so much that I want to explore. Uh, you know, the first time when I, you know, once I heard about you. Um, it was really, really interesting. So I want, uh, you know, our audience, whether they're, uh, you know, in the U.S. or Nepal or around the world to get to know you a little better. But, uh, this Kulagi, so let's sort of start from the beginning in terms of um childhood and youth in Nepal. Tell us a little bit more about um, your life back in Nepal. Um, and, you know, if you have any special memories from that time. Sure, Pritiji. First of all, once again, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. And especially having seen your work and you've initiated a very interesting program and concept and organization called the Great Nepali Diaspora. The diaspora activities, diaspora programs, diaspora academies of some big interest to me for a long time. So I'm very happy to be in your program. So let's go back to some of my uh, childhood memories and some of my initial kind of steps. It's been a long time, you know, I'm kind of a pretty, um, I've been in Europe for quite some time. So I was born and I grew up in Bhospuri, Nepal. That's a district in Nepal. That time it was very remote, no roads, no other connection. We basically had to trek for several days to be there. And the closest town used to be Dharan. So I left um, Bhospuri maybe permanently when I was maybe about 17, 18. But I left Bhospur when I was around 11 or 12, temporarily to go to school in Tehran. Some people used to go to one school in Yaku, and even from Bhospur, the actual town of Bhospur was about one and a half days travel from the village. Oh, wow. So that was, that was pretty remote. So then I went to uh, public high school in Tehran. Uh, and then after finishing those days, it used to be grade 10, the school leaving certificate SLC. After that, I went to Birat Nagar because that was cheaper and easier to go. Was uh, the Mahindra Mohan College, Birat Nagar, So then on, then obviously I went to, uh, I got in scholarship to go to 
Colombo Park in India, and then eventually to work in Nepal and other places, which we can go to as we right. discuss further, but that's the beginning. Oh, wow, incredible, incredible. Only what I want is so special is, I mean, imagine Nazarpo, you know, beginnings were in such a remote part of Nepal, right? And now to think that Hazuko career is urban planning in the U.S., right? Costo contrast. Like, do you reflect on, on that? It's that's an interesting, so interesting sort of, you know, journey. Yeah, yeah, that's a very interesting observation. All the way from really remote places in Nepal to kind of urban planning and doing urban development in a very developed country. That's uh, that's a pretty big leap, but. Um, during my time, almost anyone of kind of my age, within 10 years elder or 10 years younger to me, the trajectory was very similar because Nepal was 99.9% of the people had difficulties basically making a living. And then a vast majority of the people those days were in hills and then begin to they slowly begin to walk to the plains. Uh, the plain was not as big populated as uh, densely populated is right now because of the malaria other diseases. So most of the people that you encounter these days, you are a different generation, but the previous generation, the story that I have is not very peculiar, so I don't really have to take a lot of credit and claim because almost everyone went through the same tracks. But yes, that, that would, it's a big contrast. Awesome, awesome. So, so Amikaji, did you, you know, what did you dream of? While I was and you know, through your journey in Biratnagar and so on, what did you want to be? Is what you are right there? Is okay. is that you know close enough? No, that's a good question. It's probably not close enough at all. It's not even close by any sense because I didn't even know what anything was at that time. Right. So during that time, the exposure were in the hills were very limited in school. Basically, what you listen to is maybe a couple hours of radio. Even that came along even late. And it used to be open only for a couple of hours and only a few households. Apart from that, it was like word of mouth. It was a very rural area. Some people came to the land to get salt and spices and clothes and those kind of things once in a while. But they had to go through a lot of hurdles. They had to cross the river on a boat, cross uh, uh, you know, Arun and many other smaller rivers and stay in between uh, many times and then come back. So the exposure in terms of what was happening in the world or the global situation was extremely limited. As a matter of fact, pretty easy those days, I don't think there was a reach of the government in the village and the place that we used to have because there was basically nothing. There were no police, there were no courts, there were no medical places, there were no schools. So the only one small town was the Hospur Bazaar, which was very long distance from us, and that was basically a commercial center. But I think they had maybe a very small office, and it was so long ago that the government in Nepal did not have its reach all across the country. So uh, you are basically on your own, and if a big thing happened, basically you resolve that in the palace. And then if it is something that was like a murder or something, then eventually somebody walked to the small court, one or two people in Bosporo. And then if it was big, then people sometimes I used to hear people went to Kathmandu on certain days. That was the only way to go there. So given all of that, I didn't really know much on what to think of the um, career or profession and all of that. But once I came to Dharan, and then a lot of teachers were from Bihar, 
in UP. Uh, and then there were some other teachers from the town. And then I got to see a life of a teacher because there was a lot of prestige and a reputation that you come across them on the street, you do namaste and sir. They were uh, taken into a very high kind of position and they were trusted. So in the beginning, my aim was, in those days, the salary used to be, I think, for a teacher about 200 rupees a month. And Gorkha Patra is a paper that once in a while we used to get to see. And that used to be the salary. And I thought, wow, well, I mean, it would be a good life if there's, I could become a math or science teacher and earn a salary of 200 rupees and be called the survey across, across the street. That's as much as I could think. And actually, eventually, to come back to your question, I did remain in some sort of academia because as soon as I finished my column of applied scholarship and my bachelor's degree in architecture and engineering in India, I came back and I taught at the Institute of Engineering in Lalitpur, in Pulsok, in Nepal. So I remained a teacher for a long time, maybe about 12, 15 years. And then I came here, and even then it's a combination of professionalism and academia. So I taught on the side at Arizona State University for almost 15 years. So in some ways, that concept kind of remained, but the imagination that I had was entirely different. That's, I mean, it's amazing. As, as I listen to you, Kati um, Partha, it feels like I'm, you know, uh, you know, watching a movie, but I'm still right in terms of it's, 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 it's incredible. Watching, watching it, uh, story is movie. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. And, um, you know, to be able to, you know, uh, go through that journey and, you know, everything else you've seen and, you know, um, is definitely very, very interesting. Um, because, um, one thing, say, I mean, you talked a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, your move to, to the U.S. and so on. That I, uh, I'm sure it wasn't as, um, you know, simple as, um, as, as you mentioned. That how was it? Uh, you know, with, with all the, uh, experience and so on, how was, um, that transition? Um, to the U.S. Thank you, Preetiji. That's a very interesting question because the U.S. or the Europe or any other foreign country used to be kind of in the dreams of many of us. The only places that I had seen was a few places in Nepal. And then when I went to Kathmandu, I was kind of awestruck because it was a big city from my perspective, right? And so from then when I went to India, I went to Gujarat in a place called Baroda, a very nice place. And then spent five years of my really young days from about 17 to 22 or 18 to 23, somewhere around that is mine. So obviously, it was very close to Mumbai and a couple other places, and those are kind of as big a thing as you can think of because that is the exposure that we had. And of course, India was a much bigger country, although it was very poor and then also very kind of backward in many senses because it had just become independent, people used to travel on bullet cars. There was some trains and some trucks and some vehicles, but very rudimentary. And uh, life was uh, pretty poor there too, although there was a system of education and concept of education was better than So even then, there was some thought about the U.S. by looking at the paper. But one exposure that I got in India was, in Nepal, there were only very few people that I knew who had actually gone to the U.S. and come back as a student. But in India, that I'm talking about, you know, like mid 70s and late 70s, those days there was this kind of um, um, trajectory of many of the engineers and medical people and scientists 
coming to the US and Europe. So it had just begun, that kind of journey had just begun. So then people used to talk about the graduate record exam, the test of English as a foreign language, applying to the university, of course, all that by snail mail. So that's something we used to hear when we went to the university, because those universities in India, of course, were kind of um, um, crafted in the image of the British university. You know, after the British left, because they were there for more than 104 years, so there was a lot of really big impression and big footprint that they had lived in India. So I kind of knew you know, how big a deal it would be to go to places like U.S. And then some of their students who used to come back and say, okay, you know, U.S. is like that. So it was like a dream world for many people. There were no phones. There were no internets. Uh, very hard to see some black and white pictures here and there of the papers. But we did watch some, some Western movies like made in the U.S. and in U.K., so that gave some kind of glimpse of how the life was in the U.S. I remember some of it, but still you had to imagine how it is, right? So finally, when I got a chance to come to University of Hawaii, after having worked at the Institute of Engineering for about four years, uh, it was definitely a big deal because very few people used to come. But they used to give scholarship to very few people. It was very difficult to get any um transaction to dollar people we didn't have money my salary was 570 rupees a month and not a lot right and it was difficult for people to think of getting a visa buying a ticket having a dollar and going someplace the only thing the only way that some people lived was some institutional mechanism the u.s government or the u.s foundation or the embassy would advertise some scholarship just a few usually just to be like three four or five per year and then people apply, and then if you got it, they will organize everything when you came. So obviously, it was a really big difference between Nepal or any other country. Even when I first went to Thailand, for example, on the way to the U.S., I saw the escalator at the, at the airport. It was a big deal, right? Then I went to Hong Kong, stopped over for a few days. It was entirely a different world. Went to Japan on my way to come to Hawaii for a few days. And then so, you know, those are all kind of wonderful time. The first exposure to the new world. And then when I came to Hawaii, it was a big difference between Nepal and Hawaii. And uh, Hawaii, even otherwise, is a very beautiful place. So so I was uh, always stuck. So journey was great. Uh, but uh, that time, there were so few people. And then we had a job. And culturally, it was very difficult to kind of think of settling outside. And parents were getting older. So there were lots of those cultural nuances. And with a good education, life was not too bad in Nepal. Of course, not comparable to the U.S., but uh, we, I was doing pretty well. So, so I went back. So that's that was my first uh, U.S. exposure. But to continue to ask uh, what you were kind of implying, the differences, I ended up coming to the U.S. several times and going back several times. So then I went back, and then I worked in Nepal for about four, five years in Pokhara also and the rest of the country. Then eventually I came to again to Boston to do my initial program at MIT and then eventually to do my doctor program at the graduate school of design at Harvard. So uh, that was the second time. Then of course by that time I knew a little better, but I still had a job. Eventually I, I went back again. I was kind of nowhere for a long time. And then I went back again and then lived in Nepal for about five years. Uh, I headed uh, the International Union for Conservation of Nature. That was an international Swiss-based organization 
and traveled within Nepal and across Asia and all that. So that's what kind of kept me kind of nomad in a pendulum between U.S. and Nepal. Uh, but finally, I, I decided to move the apartment team to that. So that's a long story. Incredible. Um, Amikazi, I mean, um, I've obviously heard a little bit about your wonderful moves and so on. And one thing that, well, at personal level, the interesting laga is is exactly this as well, right? Because um, there's obviously oily gold generation, but there's a big chunk of people that come to the US or Australia or UK for higher studies. You know, a, a segment of that actually go back. I learned that there isn't, there aren't a lot of people that uh, do this moving back and forth. About my life, life, I moved back to Nepal twice. You know, so I sort of um, understand the nuances. And I think, you know, uh, with aging parents and so on, we have a lot of uh, things that pull us back. Um, one question I have for you is, uh, but now you have seen your 60s, 70s, they can go Nepal and you've moved back several times, China. Um, back and forth also go, you know, because what also happens is, you know, when we think about our diaspora, um, they come here, you know, they finish their uh, study, they settle here, or even if they go back, it's after a few years, uh, but most people try to, you know, go frequently, there is this gap, right? So uh, it's been uh, back and forth pretty frequently, the Snokhalko. Just was actually, you know, your, uh, you know, the the version of Nepal you experienced as a child, you know, as a young person, and you've gone over time. Do you hear that? How has that evolution been, Dostolatsa? That's a very good question, Tritiji, because we are all kind of prisoners of our own experience, right? And then we are also kind of uh, evolutionary creatures based on certain roots and the way that we travel and sometimes become nomads, sometimes settle in different places, because even within Nepal, uh, people from my generation begin to move from the hills to the plains, a little more comfort and a little more better economy. And then many people who had slightly better education even moved to Kathmandu and settle, which was a different world by any means. So all those things had changed, but a long time ago, the contrast between, let's say, a Nepali village and Nepali urban area, and then Nepal in big cities in India, and Nepal, India, or the US or Europe, was like a dramatic difference. It was like uh, uh, some of my friends used to say in the engineering institute before I had seen Europe and America, they used to say that, hey, if you go there, you'll get should be a big cultural shock because in terms of the not just the anthropological human culture, but in terms of the way that things are done, the cleanliness, the quality, the efficiency, the development, all of that will kind of really shock you big time. That's what they used to tell me because that, that was the kind of really big difference. There was a lot of development and consolidation and science and technology in Europe and the US or North America or Japan. And Nepal was you know, $150 a year per capita. 99% of people were like me, under uh, no good opportunities for education, uh, basically maybe one or two pairs of clothes in the whole entire year if you're lucky. Then, if you're lucky, then you had maybe close to 70, 80% of your calorie intake guaranteed to you because there was a lot of 
hunger and there was a lot of issues. So there was a really big contrast. So when I first came, first time I left Nepal and saw the rest of the world, it was sky and earth, right? So these days, and then of course, I've been going to Nepal very frequently. Even when I worked here, I went there every year or two. Now there's a lot of conversions in terms of the comforts, in terms of the things that you see, whether it is an iPhone or whether it is the home that you live, the indoor plumbing, whether it is uh, driving a motorbike or a car, or even flying some places, or even the quality of the roads, even the kind of food that you can basically manage to eat, go to restaurant, or buy clothes. It's kind of globalized, and also, relatively speaking, Nepal also has improved because there's a lot of middle-class people. And especially if you go to some big cities in India, which I went back to the place that I studied a couple of times, there's a big convergence between here and there. Uh, there might be some differences in situationally, but in terms of many things, whether it is a shopping mall or the TV or the computing or people having a really good education or castle or clothes or whatever, uh, there's not much difference. So um, the interesting thing is what we have seen in our lifetime. Of course, you as Anderson saw a lot of things already when we were young, but in our lifetime, Maybe the average per capita income was less than $100 per year globally. Now the average global per capita income is about $15,000 US dollar per year globally. There are countries like Nepal, which is not too bad, about $1,200 per capita now. But there are some countries in Africa which are like still $250-$300 per year. There are very few. And then many other countries have really caught out. And in terms of the economy and comfort and benefit, than being able to go to school in terms of the literacy rate, in terms of the life expectancy, in terms of the childhood mortality, in terms of having a bike or a car, a motorbike, having enough 1,800, 2,000 calories per day to be able to eat, and having you know a couple pairs of clothes, uh, or even taking some vacation. The vast majority of the world has kind of converged into a lot more development and um, no, that's that's very interesting, and I want to kind of um, come back to that because you know, there's this thing that you know um, I found very interesting. and again, it's a it's a rare thing that I see is uh, you know your LinkedIn title and what you you know what your passion project for making something that you're very well known for are completely different things. And testo balance testo to parallel successful things uh, and that are even separate money uh, so just want to you know explore a little bit on in terms of that uh, you know but we've heard about professional uh, accomplishments tell us about this this passion project and how it has a life of its own well thank you thank you pretty G. um yeah so it, it does appear a few kind of you know I work on diaspora I work in development and by training, I'm an architect and then eventually PhD in planning. But uh, if I had to professionally define myself, there will be basically three terminology that I will use. So I'm a planner, but within planning, planning is like a jack of all trades, right? It really suits my personality. You can do many things in planning. People come from design background, people come from engineering background, people come from economics background, anthropology, geography, sociology, a lot of things people come from. 
you're still a planner. And so that's that's my kind of training and profession is design and planning. So that's one. That's the kind of my day job most of the time. But I'm also international development professional for a long time. Within planning, within design, within energy, within environment, I worked on international development for a long time also. So that's why I traveled to so many countries. I worked in countries like Kenya or Tanzania or India or Fiji. Uh, Kenya alone, probably five, six visits, and I was training at the university. I was working with the government. Uh, same thing with, uh, with Fiji and same thing in many other countries, including places like Abu Dhabi, including places like Mexico, where I worked a lot with, with the World Bank. So a um, lot of work in Pakistan, a lot of work in even Thailand, Korea. So all of that, there's also a passion for me in development internationally. Anytime that I go to any new place, I see, hey, what are these guys doing? So then we to Fiji and I saw that their per capita income is Six, seven, eight, nine thousand dollars per capita per year. That's a pretty decent income. It's like a higher per income country, right? And then I begin to see, well, it's a small country, less than a million people. What do they do? I try to talk to people and I make some observations and I compare. Of course, I've got a piece of Nepal, right? And then I see, well, they have a very high upscale tourism. They sell their hotels from anywhere between $200 to $1,000. They've got world class resorts. Lots of people come and spend a lot and a lot of money. And then, of course, they export. So tourism is a really big deal. And then they export really high-value products in terms of agriculture. They are not like a manufacturing colony. They're still agrarian. And by the way, there's something like 7,000 Nepalese who do a lot of these agriculture. They've been there like last 150 years in Fiji. And it was amazing for me to go to their village. And they can, they still call you Daju and they have kukuri and, you know, all that. So... Then they have like things like uh, papaya and mango and pineapple and uh, some leeches, a lot of things that in developed countries, those to them is New Zealand and Australia and then of course America and so on, is very high value fruits. Uh, and so they make big money from those perspectives. Then even for such a small country, there are 10 universities, 850,000 people in 10 universities. The University of South Pacific has something like 46,000 students. A lot of them are international students, even though they are Nepalese students. So I used to go and provide some lectures. And so this, you know, they have learned some of the things from the Australian counterparts that you can use your education as uh, export to the people in their brain. So they've got a few things right out there. And then so they have a pretty good standard of living, you know, it's an upper um, middle income country and life is pretty good. And same thing, I began to going to places like uh, Kenya since 2006. So when I was a student in Nepal, we, it was a lot of road learning. So we used to learn about Africa as a dark country, then about the diseases, about lots of problems, the, the, um, the kind of uh, wild animals, uh, problems in terms of eating, manufacturing, and, and technology. And then so just one country I focused, six travels from 2006 to 2016 with the same group of people. Within that time, their per capita kind of 
went up by 75%. Okay. Uh, still a lot of corruption, still a lot of problem, but no way that the way that I was thinking about Africa is entirely different. You go to this Nairobi, it's like Mumbai or downtown Phoenix. You go to Dar es Salaam, it's like some part of it is like downtown Phoenix. A lot of development and a lot of really orientation towards what how they want to really increase the per capita. So my second kind of identity is in international development, and I try to do that in Nepal also. And then my third is academia, right? I like to teach, I like to learn every time that I go lecture. So even at the University of Mexico, for example, when I used to go to Mexico, they used to invite me for talks. When I went to Chile, they used to invite me for talks. So all of these kinds of, kinds of things that I have done. I've taught at Strathmore University in Kenya. So those three things sometimes I combine. So when you see things like diaspora in development, when you see how diaspora can really support uh, development in their native countries. By the way, Africa has one of the really amazing work by the diaspora that didn't probably know it uh, because you are in this field. Some of the countries are way advanced than even like us in India or even Pakistan. They even have, some of them have even represented in the parliament in places like Senegal from the diaspora. So, so those three things are not too different for me. Uh, and just because in the urban planning, there's a lot of like social science, a little bit of economics, a little bit of sociology. So what you see in me is uh, kind of jack of all trades, kind of a little uh, multidisciplinary type of, in, type of interest. It could be, it, when you look at it, it could be a little kind of um, confusing, but that's what I you know, I think now that you've explained it, I think it makes uh, sense. They're all connected in terms of political interest and your, um, you know, you lived experiences um, across everything. Um, but I want to kind of share a little bit in terms of I um, the first time I actually heard about you, Ambikaji. Um, you know, after starting TVND, and very soon, we started the diaspora mapping survey. We felt a need that. Um, the up-to-date information about our diaspora was missing and so on. So Theo got that very safe. The, uh, I think the first paper that we actually read as a group to get started was Hazuko, um, in terms of the, the work you've done on diaspora and so on, uh, which was which was a really great starting point and it gave us a lot of you know insights and so on. Um, Rob, you know, through the TGNT Kotakwan but we're obviously working on, on that uh, as well. Uh, you know, what I'd love to ask you is, you know, you've been doing this research for a while, right? And you understand the need and so on. Um, I'd love for you to explain to our audience mm-hmm. uh, why they should be a part of something like this. Uh, you know, a diaspora mapping survey. What is the Why should I, uh, you know, put this information? Uh, and you're the perfect person, I think, the perfect ambassador to, you know, talk about it. So I'd love for you to share it with us. Thank you for that question. That is uh, definitely, I mean, that's one of the passions that I definitely have. Uh, partly because the reason that I was doing, I had my feet in two boards for such a long time, was cultural, my own kind of sense of insecurity, my own sense of identity, and my own sense of a little bit of a romanticism of working. So especially having been involved in the people's movement in 1990. I was a student here, but even from here, we did 
contribute a lot of things in terms of making protests, going to White House, the Capitol, writing papers, calling people, trying to support the new democracy coming in the parliament in the 90s. I was getting young at that time. So that, I had some interest with a good education, luckily, uh, that going back to Nepal and, you know, something like what Sorin Wadley is doing right now. Uh, in my years, at least, he's a very smart guy, but uh, in my years, I also had some of, some some sparks like that a little bit, right, uh, in the previous generation. So uh, working in the actual development sector in Nepal, doing roads, talking to people, thinking about anthropology, thinking about some uh, increase in the standard of living of Nepalese people, improving the education system in Nepal. Those kind of things used to kind of romanticize me. Uh, and I know I like it here. It's a good country here. I all uh, sites in America, but by and large, you make a good living, you get a job, and you can work, and you be, can be pretty comfortable. Uh, but uh, because I was so much plugged in, because I came from the village, and I had worked bare feet, and I knew the system out there, and went to public schools, went to even similar school in India, taught at government university in Nepal. So my interest was to kind of see people, everyone who has uh, doesn't have a lot of initial benefit, like right? coming from a big city and having rich parents, they should all have that kind of opportunity. So that was one of my motivations. You know, young people have some idealism, and I have some of that. Now, Nepal definitely gave me a lot of prestige, identity, and sense of belonging. We all do things that really suit us in the long run, right? I mean, at the end, it has to work for you. So that's what was working for me. And that's what, even after having residency here in North America, I went back. So, uh, so that is one thing that when I lived here, I was kind of missing a little bit of that. So once I found the community, and then of course through a diaspora, at least there's a platform that you are linked, even if you don't live in Nepal and you are not completely part of the Nepalese society, but in terms of its development equation, you can become a really significant part and you can do something. So there was one motivation of kind of working on it. So you will see that, uh, although kind of in, in terms of journal publication, there are only a few, but I had done a lot of organizations of diaspora meetings and put some books and booklets out of that. The first one I did was long term over at the University of Toronto in 1993. I think that was the, la that was the largest first really high-level international conference of the Nepali diaspora. Something like the 100 attendees, ministers from Nepal, the vice from applying commissioner from Nepal, ambassadors, lots of people from the World Bank, and all of that we organized with a little bit of support from the Canadian government, and we actually published a book called The Economic Strategy for Nepal. So that was one of the first, and that kind of gave me that connection of what I had always wanted to do. So that is one. And the second one is now we live here. Children are here, right? And our second generation is here. Uh, it's very difficult for them to go back. Very cheap. Some people will go back, maybe for a short period of time. But by and large, their life is going to be wherever they are. It's just because we brought them here. And how do we actually connect? And how do we think of all the welfare of that particular diaspora who's still straddling between the two cultures, right? At least several generations straddle the two cultures. And 
how do you do that? One way is to organize the diaspora, think about it like you're doing a great work in terms of entrepreneurship and all that. So that really kind of helps us build our own capacity, not only for the benefit of Nepal, but if we are not able to stand on our, on our own feet, and if we do not really understand the strength and weaknesses that we have, there's not much we can do. So you know what you cannot measure, you cannot manage. Yeah. No, I, I so get that. Tarabala, I have a question from the Banlaji, Ambikaji, Aida. You know, we talk about different generations of Nepalese over, over time and so on. But one thing you see, you talked about is that um, mixed, mixed mixed generation, people like us that always have this uh, thing, right? And I, I always joke with my friends that this is the the new midlife crisis and I've sort of talked about it a little bit I know where uh, even the generation but a lot of us uh, you know struggle with this uh, this decision whether they should be in Nepal especially uh, I think yeah once the people are really successful they always have this push you know aging family all of it but there's all there's this all of it you know and um, you know so it if you were to just, you know, give somebody advice in terms of that, um, what what would that be? Somebody's, you know, uh, maybe that sort of generation, middle generation, so that is struggling with that decision. And and I would love your context of how you've seen the bar uh, changes and, you know, USCO and both cook mobile. If somebody comes to you and says, oh, because I'm thinking about going back to Nepal, uh, what is your advice? <laughs> well, it's a it's a difficult thing to offer advice for people on what to do with their life, but uh, still we can entertain that question and see some hypothetical scenarios. Then, people have to definitely craft and carve out their own trajectory, their own journey, their own interest, and obviously you got to do what you like well, because there's democracy in Nepal, there's democracy here, so it's your life. And there's no, no feeling of guilt, although there's sometimes some of us feel a little guilty of having left Nepal and not contributed, but that's a personal thing. But uh, there's no reason to feel like that. It's, it's okay. It's your life. You do what you want to do. People, moved, have, people have moved around. And to simplify, people have moved around not only among countries, but inside the country itself. So from my village, I moved to a town that eventually took Kathmandu. There was also, uh, you know, I've got some obligation to the village also. So, first of all, movement is uh, pretty normal. This is our evolutionary process. We go where there's life is better, there's a better quality, there's a better quality for your kids. And then also in terms of your own education, we can really utilize So that's number one. Number two is obviously there's some written love or connection with Nepal. And it's not only for Nepal, for any country. You talk to people from, even people from places like Japan or Korea, even more developed countries, they would have the same kind of provincial connectivity to where they're from, right? And even if they come from a poorer country, it's still the same thing. Even if you go to India, which is like 80% similar culture, you connect with the Nepalese and the Nepalese will feel more comfortable with kind of the Nepalese thing. So it's it's only natural phenomenon. We are the evolution of human beings is somewhat tribal. We are always 
kind of tribal, but in terms of that's fine anthropologically, but obviously we've got to go beyond that when we live in a society and become a little more secular and accept everyone and also be open-minded. That, that's a civilized noting. But in in terms of intuition, in terms of our evolution, in terms of our genes, uh, <clears throat> all animals are kind of tribal. And so are, so are human beings. Uh, before the agricultural revolution, obviously it used to be a very small tribe of 150, 200 people banding together and doing the, uh, the hunting and gathering. And then when people settled, maybe about 11,000 years ago, it's the agriculture prominently home, obviously people didn't have an opportunity to travel to vast distances. They will settle. So for like eight generations, we, my, my family came from Bakwanpulu, prior to that in Jumla, prior to that in Kardalianza, hundreds of generations in Nepal. But uh, the last nine generations was in Bosnia. We were just in one or two villages, right? And then so that's how we knew each other. The marriages used to be within the walking distance at the most a couple hours. So this is how people kind of manage their life. Otherwise, it was too difficult. It was not like today where there's a global connectivity through Facebook and all that. So all of that comes into our kind of genes and it's perfectly okay to be connected to Nepal. And even if you live here, listen to Narin Gopal's song or you enjoy Gundaruk and Hot sometimes, you know, it's, it's, that's what we are, you know. Initially, the kind of taste that gets developed in your taste bud remains throughout your life because majority of your personality and many things are basically formed within the first five years of your life that people, the scientists say. So we are where we started from there and then we nurture ourselves and we learn and then we move along. So the not really an advice, do what you want to do, Try to do the best for yourself. But if you want to do something in Nepal, first of all, be in a strong position yourself. Stand on your own feet, right? Have a job or have a good credential, even if you want to go back to Nepal, that you can really utilize that. Uh, just don't be kind of half-baked midstream and then say, I'm going to go to Nepal and do something. We have a lot of smart people in Nepal. Education is pretty amazing in Nepal. 22 medical colleges. 12 university, 60 engineering colleges, you know, hundreds, tens of thousands of PhDs and medicals and all of that. So uh, people, sometimes people kind of assume from here that well, even if they get a master's degree from somewhere in Canada, Australia, US, they say, oh, now I can tell what to do to the Nepalese people. No, don't, don't be carried away with that kind of thing. So prepare yourself. And if you think you can contribute something, then I now can wait to either do it from here or if you really want to make your feet wait and go to Nepal, all the power to you. Oh, I like that. I like that. You know, people definitely need a plan. I I, I, I do believe that. I think, uh, you know, sometimes our emotions take over and, you know, uh, your planning is better anyways, right? When you have a plan, uh, plan A, B, C, it, it always helps. Uh, to sort of, uh, you know, talk more in terms of that last point you mentioned, right? Uh, you know, what if you choose not to go? How can people contribute to the diaspora wherever they are or to Nepal? What's what's a way that you're seeing more and more? So Prithiji, one of the first things I think we need to do now, I call it a diaspora in the making. 
they call the Nepalese diaspora as a diaspora in the making because we still are not that mature or not that strong. And unlike Chinese, Indian, and some other diaspora, which are also called the old diaspora, we are brand new kid in the block. So we, our rise has been very rapid in terms of number, education, and the potential. We need a lot of homework among ourselves in terms of our capacity mapping, in terms of organizations, in terms of training, in terms of really knowing, having the information and having the knowledge. So this is one of that small contribution that I try to make whenever I have like I belong to Association of Nepalese in America. That's one of the that's actually the oldest Nepalese association here in the US and Canada. And so every time there's a meeting, by the way, the next one is in Denver, Colorado, July first weekend. Uh, I we usually do a Nepal forum and then I usually kind of organize something about diaspora and then also publish all the proceedings. Because that's one way that you can connect a lot of people that come to diaspora and then understand their own strength. So I would advise that. Well, I think that's a that's a great point. And um, you know, we we also encourage, I think, you know, our community members to to be more involved. I think I think that and uh, to figure out ways to contribute back to Nepal or the diaspora. I think that's important. Um so so thank you for that. Um one quick thing I wanted to kind of ask you is Um, you talked about, you know, you shared a little bit about all these different countries you've been to and you've actually been monitoring, right? Japan, they can Kenya, they can all these places. And um, we also talked a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, kune kune countries, they say they use education as an export, all of that. You know, when you think about 2023 uh, and Nepal, what is what is the one thing that Nepal could export? What is Nepal go brand? you know, currently. Oh, oh. so that's that's wonderful. Uh, we really need to think from that perspective. That's a very good thinking, Pitizi. Our typical brand so far has been a little bit of exoticism, natural landscape and beauty, and maybe a little bit of anthropological and cultural claim of richness and resources. You can only go so far with that. That's good. For tourism, our natural landscape is, of course, is spectacular. There are very few places that can really surpass the beauty of Nepal. And the cultural landscape is also pretty impressive in Nepal. And the old culture, oldest country in South Asia, and lots of really good practices, diversity, music, dance, the way that we do things. All that is very important in terms of like um, promoting tourism and bringing back some dollars, and then also creating jobs. But that's only one thing that Nepal can offer. This is like Fiji, only 850,000 people, 160 islands. They have lots of other limitations, so they do the best that they can do from whatever they're doing. This is like Kenya, of course, is 50, 50% more than our population. There are something like 45, 46 million people. It's a big country. A lot of resources, again, in terms of hydro, tea, flowers, all kinds of things. So they do manufacturing, they do tea, they do flour, they do tourism, like all these um, uh, animal safaris. Um, but um, this is like Tanzania also do education for Pan-Africa. They've got 
world-class universities where they hire teachers from India and many other places and have students like University of Dodoma had students from all over Africa. So Nepal is, is we, it's a small country compared to our neighbors, uh, India and China. Both of them are almost 50 times as big as we are. But uh, in the scheme of things, out of the 193 or say around 20 countries, we are a reasonable size. We're probably 35th in population and maybe 40 in terms of ages. So we are a mid-sized country. We can become a middle middle hour if we had a really good income. Uh, 30 million is great. You know, I mean, places like Netherlands have 16 million people. Sweden has 8, 9 million people. Netherlands and Norway has three, four, five million people, and Singapore has five million, New Zealand has five million. You know, I mean, all of them, all of them, bunch uh, big weight in the system. So it's just that we don't have a good economy. Almost thirty million people. So the climate is one factor that we can use for, like, let's say, medical tourism or um, other healing, therapeutical garden type of things. So. Tourism is given. We definitely need to continue with that, but that's only one tourism only can help the shorts. And and we are not really a high value tourist country like I was mentioning, like France, a population of sixty five million people that they get more than hundred million people visitors every year. And then it's high income tourism. We go to uh, any place like Eiffel um, Tower, Eiffel Tower, for a family it will be picking out $250 easily for tickets, three or four tickets. So uh, we can think of medical tourism. There are lots of like 22 medical schools which have been recognized by WHO. All these doctors come to US, Canada, Australia. They do very well. They have been well-trained. So medical facilities could be really amazing in this one. The, but if you look at the, any country's initial trajectories uh, from Agriculture to service economy is very rare. It doesn't really happen. We always go through some kind of assembly or manufacturing. That it's China, that's Singapore, that's Vietnam, that's Malaysia, that's Taiwan, that's every country, that's India. So one thing that we have really not done is we import so many cars and iPhones and motorbikes and so on. One of my economist friends was telling me that, hey, just like many other countries, you should we should only allow to import then eighty percent of those those parts or the content. Forty or twenty five percent should be made in Nepal, and because it's such a big market in Nepal, Nepal imports like hundred thousand cars a year. They will set up a factory in Nepal to put something that we can easily make, like a tailpipe, one of the hoods, uh, or you know, so many things that we can make. So manufacturing some type of manufacturing, including agricultural processing, manufacturing of some of the basic things that have been very well organized, like cars and motorbikes and bikes, at least a part of it in the front of the factory within the other, other, other factories. That would be another thing that uh, even people like Shorty Warriors sometimes talk about. I think that's something that's missing from the dialogue. But what we do, we always think of some academic level of economy building, but we don't be able to the grassroots of that. So education definitely is another one. At least on South Asia, with a really nice climate, you know how people used to go to Simla and Darjeeling and 
Mount Abu in India and many other nice hill stations for education in India, even some of the really good schools don't school like in there. These, even within the country, people wanted to send their kids to a really good climate place. And so Nepal, you know, very large portion of Nepal. I, I always think that every time you drive in Nepal, every point is a viewpoint. You know how you drive in our they say there would be a viewpoint after some time in Nepal. So every point is a viewpoint, right? So that's uh, another thing that we can really do, but obviously we need to kind of boost up the quality. I think we are working in a, a little bit. Medical college had some students from India, Sri Lanka, and outside, and Bhutan, and a few other places. But we sent a lot of students, a lot of money outside. Even this year, there are 170,000 no, no objects and certificate given to students, 50,000 alone to Australia. And in average, one one person going to Australia needs at, at least about 50,000 Australian dollars. That's a lot of money. And some universities in Australia are really good. And of course, some people want to go there and have a permanent residency, but some people want to go just by education. Now, the only out of the 50 universities in Australia, 10 are really good world class. Many others, Nepal can definitely create those kind of universities right there in Nepal. Not only for the Nepalese, but in many other countries. So we've got to think laterally uh, on many of these opportunities, uh, I think. Oh, no, I, I agree. Uh, and I think there's so many things that there is a potential for. That maybe Maybe we need a little bit more alignment with policy. Maybe we need a little bit more marketing. It's those kind of things, right? It's a mixed bag of uh, these kind of things. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I know. Oh, interesting, interesting. Um, one thing from from your from our conversation, I definitely feel like Fiji and Diko, we should create a chapter for sure. Um, I think that there's a good presence there. I've you know heard of few economists and so on that have, that are there as well. Uh, there are one thing that I'd sort of like to um, close our episode with uh, because he is, you know, um, uh, you've obviously seen a lot, done a lot, Nepal, uh, all over the world and so on, right? Um, and my question could two parts. So one is, you know, when you first came to the U.S. on the 70s, uh, uh, and, you know, throughout, you know, Aydikusamaku journey, uh, how has your Afno perception of, you know, being a Nepali, how has that Sort of evolved if if it has on the other side Maze, how has the perception of you know non nepali that interacted with you when you came as a student thinking oily Maze, do you see that uh, shifting good good pretty so in terms of my own kind of identity and perceptions and who i am nepaliness obviously must doesn't change when you come in the middays if you come very young, immediately after high school, that's different. But I came for graduate school. First, when I first came here, I was almost like 45, 46. So uh, my basic personality and my identity and many of my likings and dislikes and so completely formed. So I'm pretty much kind of what I am. Obviously, we learned a little bit here and there, but your core basically is already pretty different, right? Uh, but in terms of how we get along in perception that we uh, encounter with the non-Nepalese, like um, the other Americans or other international personality. 
is uh, initially when you came come as a student, and obviously it's also your own psychology, at least in my time, always wanted to go back and did most of the things about Nepal. So it was kind of an idea of temporary living in the years. As exciting, as nice as it was, uh, that was my kind of psychology. Now I have come here and lived here permanently, becoming older, have health issues, have kids, have different kids, have friends, families. So with all of that, we know that even if I go back to Nepal as a retiree, it will only be half time at the most or something like that, right? So so the psychology has somewhat kind of different. So you care more about what's going on here, what is the politics here, because that's what impacts you on a day-to-day basis. Because if something happens, you've got to call 911, it's the fire brigade, and it's your police department that has to work rather than something that's happening in our India. So our connection to Nepal is that emotional connection. And we do definitely want to contribute whatever we can, do things from our side. But if we live here permanently, our life belongs here. So my psychology somewhat kind of changes a little bit. And based on that, you interact with the people at work and professional societies. Also somewhat change it because you have more stick with the place that you live. And you also have a lot of psychological mistakes in Nepal. So for example, even during the by-election in Nepal, I was not sleeping. Right when there's the election here, also I'm not sleeping. So with Nepali, we also get to enjoy twice the enjoyment. We have two New Year's, Dasai, Tihad, two birthdays, two Mother's everything. Day. But we also have the two other twice the kind of that we yes. carry. But we want to do things in Nepal. We know what's updating. I was sending friends, people every <laughs> 200 words on what was happening. Right. And then same thing we do here. So um, the other thing that I would add with is, is as you become a little, as I become a little older, hopefully a little wiser, then obviously you also get your own uh, a little bit of recognition on where you live. So for example, I've lived here 20, this is the longest I've lived in any one place. Even okay. in Nepal, I was at Kathmandu or Karan, Biratnagar or Bosbur. Uh, at the most, I lived in Kathmandu maybe 12, 13 years. Um, but here and now, I have been 20 years in one place in Nigeria. So, so having worked as a planner and having taught at the university and having gone to many of these seminars and many of the American planning association regular talks and so on, there is some credibility and some reputation that you break, right? So, but, so people know me a little bit in terms of reasonably my small planning field that he they kept all this kind of work in an government. He knows how to do high rise rezoning and he knows how to do because I'm also doing right. How to do so those things also really help. Then you get plugged in and get connected and then you kind of uh, become very happy with that kind of reputation. Right. Right. We had that in Nepal. It takes a lot of here because it's very competitive. Of course. No, of course. I, I love that. Um the Bikati. I feel like, you know, um, you know, you are definitely so wise. You have this wealth of knowledge in everything. And, you know, I feel like we could chat forever. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, we you have obligations as well. And, you know, we do need to cap this. This is a, for, for this episode, so we'll sort of, you know, wrap it up. But, uh, thank you so much, Amikati. There is so much. I mean, like I said, I've been so inspired by 
what you've been, uh, what you've done for Yapani, or what you continue to do with the diaspora and how you continue to inspire us. So thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome. And thank you so much for Pritiji for having me. I really appreciate it and enjoy it.